Economic mobility has been the hallmark of the American dream for generations. Unfortunately, while economists disagree about the degree of slowing in economic mobility, there's little doubt things have gotten harder in the past few decades. For writer and nonprofit leader Alyssa Port, the problem of mobility is worth our attention, as are the individual stories about just how tough that climb can be. She has written numerous books and articles on the subject through the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which she leads. In this episode of Hardly Working, I talked to Alyssa about her views on the current state of the workforce, the struggles of economic mobility in America, the future of automation and journalism, and her upcoming book, Bootstrapped. Alyssa Court, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you taking this time out. Um, I, you know, I was looking at your background, uh, and I was, uh, I was impressed uh, at the number of different kinds of things that you do. Uh, and uh, you're obviously a writer uh, and a prolific one. Uh, and uh, but you've also been involved in documentary film production, and you help run a nonprofit, and, or you do run a nonprofit, I should say. When you look at all of the stuff that you do, what do you see as the thread that kind of binds it together? Well, to me, it's all about emphasizing a certain kind of work and a relationship to work, where people can continue to create and think on a high level, despite the economic realities of the culture market, basically, which includes journalism, includes academia, includes film. What I try to do at EHRP is create a space for people who might not normally get the time and the, and the conditions to produce work of, on a high as high level they'd want to with the same level of research they'd want to. Uh, as a as a writer, I'm interested in that too, in the place where economic realities meet individual emotional and existential possibility. So I think, so my writing is, I'm interested in that. And then I'm interested in correcting that, I guess, in, in my work in the nonprofit. I mean, correcting those limitations that are imposed on people. I mean, sometimes I think about where it comes from and you know, my parents were working class originally and college professors. They became college professors. Uh, I, um, some of their parents graduated college. English wasn't their first language, my grandparents. And I think that journey, watching that and the possibility that was offered to my parents through the CUNY system, um, the university system in, in New York, uh, city uh, as academics and as students in my father's case was I'm like this was something that was a small period in history right and that's not available to a lot of people now and I guess I I'm driven by that like that trying to give the spaces for those people who might otherwise be excluded tell me a little bit more about your parents journey um that is an un very unusual uh, in today's world for people to uh be in the working class and wind up in the professoriate uh, is a, a an exceptional uh, experience. And um, just expand a little bit on why you think it's 
their pathway isn't as open and available today as it was for them? Well, you know, part of it is how much things cost, right? How much we, we we're seeing this with the student debt uh, kind of repayment plan. And before that, the student debt crisis. Uh, and then we're seeing that with how much real estate costs for people to have houses in major cities, right? So there's a lot of things that were different in the 1970s and 80s. Um, and Raj Chetty uh, has studied this about mobility and that there was like a something like a 93% chance of uh, someone born in the 40s exceeding whatever we think of as exceeding their parents economically. And now it's like 50-50. So if you're born in the 80s. So that's like a very different mobility track. And so in my my family's case, it was around academia, but there are other professions as well. And that was what I explored in depth in my last book, Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America, which was really about why, why it's so hard for people who thought they, quote unquote, did everything right. And they went to college, sometimes they went to graduate school, they became librarians, accountants, school teachers, professors, a uh, whole range of things that I, the subjects that I interview and spent a lot of time with from my last book. And it still didn't work out. They didn't even own a car. They didn't own a home. They didn't, you know, have security. They couldn't pay their kids college. Right. So like what happened? And there was this profound sense of disappointment around that. And I, I called it losing the narrative of your life because it's not just economic. It's like what you think a life should be is then has been changed for people. And, you know, I think inflation is probably a factor now too. That's an element that wasn't in play then. And there's a certain other factors too, like Uberification was, has grown and, you know, we can talk about all that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was recently at a conference down in Birmingham, Alabama, and we were talking about entrepreneurship. Um, you know, to be an entrepreneur uh, is uh, a really difficult, I mean, when we say that word, we mean somebody who conceives an idea and marches it all the way through to the market and is successful with it. All right. That's a very complicated um, set of skills that are required uh, uh, and high, a high level of skill and skill in multiple domains um, in order to have that. And what I said to the audience was, um, most of us are going to work for other people. Uh, that's just, you know, uh, there are a few of us who are, who have that, that skill set to actually become entrepreneurs, but that we can all think entrepreneurially about our own lives. Is that what you mean by the narrative or yeah, is it I mean, a similar idea of, of narrative? Yeah. Have, yeah, I mean, I like have, that entrepreneur, that connection that you're making between the entrepreneurial narrative and a more personal narrative, because I think in some ways, I mean, corporations are people. <laughs> so I guess yeah. like, the entrepreneur is a person. <laughs> or so we're told. Uh, so or we're so told. we're told. I mean, right now, I'm, just, I'm being facetious. But I mean, I think, yeah, it's like we have these storylines. I mean, in my new book that's coming out in March, uh, Bootstrapped, uh, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, I'm writing a lot about that story too, the story that we can do it all ourselves, that uh, we don't need uh, assistance of various kinds and the shame and the blame that can 
go along when when things don't work out that way for people. So yeah, we're given different stories. Uh, we're given stories in our families. We're given stories in uh, by our countries and our the generation that we're part of, right? And so I think there was a story for me about the man in the gray flannel suit, you know, like about a, what a middle class. I mean, in my instance, it was more intellectual, cultural, but I know a lot of people who of my generation, you know, in their forties and fifties who were given like another story about, um, you know, two cars, home ownership, uh, making more money than their parents. And that didn't work out either necessarily. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess the question I'm driving at is, you know, uh, I, all the structural factors are there, you know, like the geographic uh, mismatch between opportunity and individuals and the, you know, the cost of education and the, you know, the, the structural changes to the economy. It's all true. Uh, and we need to pay attention to it. I'm just curious about whether you think we also have a a problem on the side of the individual that uh, that reinforces or inter interacts with that uh, those structural problems in terms of what I would call loss of imagination about life um, and about about possibility um, that also it constrains us in a way that we're not even we don't even know that we're constrained. Um, okay, so. Do, what would you see if that imagination was there? Like, what's the opposite? Like, what's where's what's the possibility? Well, I yeah, I get to ask the questions here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, said, I, oh, you I, know I, podcasts. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. You know, but I'll, 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 I will allow it this time and explain a little bit more about what I'm thinking, which is that um, I wonder sometimes whether people take themselves seriously enough. Uh, whether they or whether they are uh, in terms of their kind of fundamental interests and outlooks on life, or whether uh, they've been either conditioned, probably conditioned, I think, um, in such a pragmatic view of the world. I I've got this destination in mind that I'm trying to get to, which is called living, being better off than my parents were, the American dream. Um, and uh, I'll do whatever it takes to get to that, rather than asking what am I what am I best suited to? What are my core interests? Where can I add value um, to the world around me? Um, and then building from there. Well, that's so. Yeah, yeah, go like ahead. That. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I think, um, and also, I guess, purpose is a question that we're, mm -hmm. you know, like your social purpose, or I mean, I guess people who are non-secular your you know deeper purpose or whatever but um yeah, yeah. i i do think that's something that what but i think what's block we you and i may disagree about what's blocking that like i think mm -hmm. some of these stories around individualism mm -hmm. um both economic and personal and so that's yeah. from the left and the right right the personal mm -hmm. ones tend to be from the uh you know from the lib liberal side right about self-actualization mm -hmm. and then the you know the right it, they tend to be ones about being self-made, making it economically, mm -hmm. but they're, they're part of the same thing. Right. And I, I mean, That's I definitely, like, I do like what you're saying about the, the purpose because 
I think, but we may disagree <laughs> about what that purpose could be. Like, I mean, I, I, I'm arguing in my new book about this, about that it's, it's for the purpose is one to build mutual collective efforts of various kinds. And, um, and I do think, you know, in my own life, that's been EHRP. I mean, that's been getting me out of the sort of personal authorial reportorial identity and into something where it's like, I'm about trying to lift up a whole, um, group of people, of journalists, and also a whole kind of reporting. So it's sort of about the kind of reporting I believe in too. So it's like, you know, that it's in depth and it's people centered and it's Mm -hmm. um, critical and, you know, it takes time, you know, all the things that are now devalued in, in, within journalism. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think we do disagree actually. I mean, I think, uh, (laughs) I, I mean, my, my overall approach to um, the questions of work and purpose and meaning. We, I mean, our, our group here that I lead is vocation, career, and work. I mean, I'm interested in this idea of calling that people have this, you know, they have certain things that they probably need to do in life, you know, that like they're, it's what they, it's built into their DNA, whether that's their actual DNA or it's, you know, into their character and their personality. Um, and that the tension that we live in is that that can only be expressed, fully expressed and developed or developed and expressed in cooperation with others. Um, the illusion, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of the, uh, you know, the individual that we're raised on or weaned on is fundamentally not true. Um, and that uh, we all require other people in order to survive in order to thrive and um and that's really what uh vocation is is figuring out how to do that how how to thrive in a social context thrive as an individual in a social context so i don't i don't think we disagree correct it sounds sounds like we really agree and honestly um the radio show I just produced, it's called Going for Broke. It's an EHRP show with Wisconsin Public Radio. And we have this episode, an hour episode called Can Work Be Love? And the reason Mm. I came up with that name and they liked it too, but whatever was just um, because it's something that I think we're supposed to, I think there are people who are like, no, this is not, work is not love and they're anti-work or post-work. But I actually think that there is, there can be love in work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just, the way we are thinking about work, it doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't have care in it. That care, lay, uh, care work is supposed to describe a certain kind of work that's about, you know, daycare or caring for elders. But I'm like, what if we could put care back into labor, like how we think about labor and um, really yeah, have that's it. great. I, no, I agree completely. And uh, livelihood. Just, uh, livelihood is the word rather than work livelihood because to me mm-hmm. that's like has live live in it <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah 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 we just published a survey called um, the social workplace uh we asked workers to reflect on you know the what 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 work brings to them aside from or in addition to uh, economic sustenance. Um, you know, what, what about all the social side of work? And I mean, I think, uh, one of the things we have, it's, it's a, it's an opportunity. It's also a real challenge is that work is one of the few places now in American society where we are actually 
running into people uh, and and kind of um, practicing the social arts, as it were, um, of social exchange, uh, of caring for one another, of um, uh, uh, of doing all of these things which are so vital to our well-being. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I I think that. Uh, you know, we we ask work to do a lot for us, um, but if we're going to spend eight, nine, ten hours a day doing it, it we it probably should doing be doing a fair amount. Um, yeah, uh, and I like that about meeting people because there's, I mean, there's just an element of chance and that is being lost. I think even in our encounter right now, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. over a screen, right? Like I'm not going to get to know you as well as if it was in the studio, right? And that the workplace still does that, even even if it's virtual, it still does that because mm-hmm. you're being thrown together with people who are different from you, and right. uh, and I love that part of work, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Um, so you lead this nonprofit, uh, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. That's right. Uh, so back to, back up to the beginning of that and tell us about it. What is it, and um, what is it, what's it? What's it doing in the world? So, okay, it was founded by Barbara Ehrenreich, who recently passed away. Um, She, I don't know what your listeners know about her, but she was a legendary uh, cultural critic in Muckraker, who wrote, her most famous book was Nickel and Dimed, but she also wrote a lot of amazing other books that people don't know as well. Fear of Falling is my favorite about the middle class. And also... um, you know, so many. Her last book was about death. Uh, she wrote a book about her a religious experience called Living with a Wild God. And she's known as a labor writer. Anyway, so she, she founded it. Um, I came on really soon after it was created and kind of built it up into what it was, uh, what it is. It had been very uh, small. When was it, when was it started? It started in 2011 or as a concept. Okay. It kind of, was first up and running 2012. I came in in 2013 and it was quite small then. And then we've been working to make it into, uh, a, have a larger footprint and be more sustainable in terms of its infrastructure. So now it's like a, you know, re- mid-size journalism nonprofit, like small to mid-size. Yeah. And what does it do? We uh, commission pieces by a range of reporters of third or a little more than a third of which are people who describe themselves as lower income or working class or having come from um, working class backgrounds. Some of them are near the poverty line um, on SNAP, on uh, experienced homelessness. And then the remaining uh, 65% are sort of middle class-ish reporters and filmmakers and photographers who also are probably struggling to do their the work kind of work they want to uh, because of the nature of the media, which I can get into, but the media industry, which doesn't really pay independent reporters much of anything and certainly doesn't have budget necessarily for photography for other elements, right? So if you're a photographer, people may be using, you know, random images, <laughs> not, not hiring you anymore. And and then with that work, we co-publish with mainstream publications, a range, everything from Esquire to Showtime to Fast Company to, you know, uh, New York Times, PBS. And we 
do that for another reason, which is that it's really important to get the message out into the mainstream media. It's not just about the people who we're supporting in their work, but it's about saying, look, a 5,000 word piece on losing your house to tax foreclosure that's written by the person who got the house, which this is an actual story, mm. got the house and did not know that it had been sort of taken from another person. Mm. Um, that piece that was FOIA'd and took forever for the person to write was like number two on the Guardian site. And it's mm. so kind of important mm. to see that it's not just the Guardian, it's like Refinery29 or Cosmo or, um, you know, like a range of publications, religious publications also. And that this can be the most popular piece. It's not just the spinach and the medicine piece. And that's an important message, I think, for mainstream media. And it's important for readers to see also voices of people who are lower income included. So even the stories are important, but also just to see that an authority can be somebody who's experienced homelessness reporting on their own condition. It doesn't have to be mm, mm. someone from a distance, you know? somebody who flies in on JetBlue for a day or, yeah, or yeah. finds a person under the, the bridge or whatever, you know, I mean, which is often the way that journalism and even the magazine reporting where people spend a long time, it can have this exoticizing feel about people who are not privileged. Right. So. That's a, that's a fascinating project. Uh, yeah. It makes me, makes my mind go in a bunch of different directions. Um, uh, you know, certainly this, a greater focus on narrative understanding of poverty, I think, is really important um, to accompany our social science efforts to quantify um, poverty, where it comes from, how it affects uh, individuals and communities. Um, but that, um, but that's very important to be surfacing that. And I'm I'm fascinated by this idea that. You know that half of your work, at least, is going to people who, ex you know, are experiencing these conditions. Um, uh, you know, it's them telling their own stories rather than being put under a microscope by others. Uh, um, how do you find people like that? It's been interesting. Um, at first, sometimes it was a recruiting effort. I mean, it was like I'd look at sites where there'd be. Uh, like small literary sites where somebody who was struggling, but had an MFA, let's say everybody, by the way, has experience. So it's not, which is sometimes confusing people are like, Oh, you take a, you know, a cook or a domestic worker. Sure. But they all have had to have published before or have been kind of trained in some way, because otherwise the learning curve is really huge. And uh, we, we just, we're too small for that. Right. Um, so let's say it's somebody who has an MFA who, uh, whatever has to do uh, uh, kind of lower wage work right now. And that like hostesses or restaurant workers, we, we'd find these people on like sites. I found one on a Twitter, Twitter storm, kind of fascinating. Um, the U.S. Army, it was a couple of years ago, they said, what has the army done for you? Uh, and it was like a, a Veterans Day. and it got, I mean, it was so ratioed. There were like 20,000 responses. Like they bombed my town in Cambodia. Like it was very, and so when one of the people was a widow who had lost her husband, um, who's a vet and she kept his prosthesis near her door. And she just had like these blog posts that were amazing. And I wrote to her and then 
uh, we edited her thing a bunch and then people we knew at the post what David Finkel who wrote um, you know brought it to the outlook section and it was on the cover of the outlook section so that that was a that was one way. Now I feel like we're out there enough. We have enough of a presence so that people find us a lot. Like we're not even necessarily seeking people out, but you know, I'll have friends who are agents, let's say, and they'll say, you know, my, one of my clients who's a writer is being evicted. Um, and that fellow just is reporting his own eviction right now for me. Uh, and so that, that is social networks in a different way, right? It's like knowing people and publishing and editing who can think of us now as the place to go for this kind of support and, and publication. I, uh, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, or I've lost, I lose track of time in the post COVID yeah, era. It's terrible. <laughs> no. uh, I spent some time with folks up at Syracuse university where they've got this really great center to support veterans who are transitioning out of military into higher education or into professional schools. Uh, and um, it's a really interesting project um, because that it's so diverse. I mean, it is just, it, it, you know, these are not just officers, <laughs> you know, who are then transitioning. These are people who really come from working class backgrounds um, who, you know, are coming onto campus, you know, five or six years later than most students and uh, in their lives. And it's culturally diverse. You know, it's like you've got these kids attending an elite institution and you've got these vets together. It's fascinating. One of the projects that they they run is a writer's workshop um, in the Syracuse community for veterans to talk about their military experience. Um, and veterans that go all the way back to the Korean, Vietnam, Korean conflicts. Um, and it's had such a, an interesting kind of healing effect on the campus community, uh, which was, it was a center of anti-war activity uh, during Vietnam and brought a lot of resentment actually um, within the Syracuse community. And this is kind of this way of bringing these two worlds together. I'm curious about uh, the folks that you are finding and bringing into this uh, project, uh, do they report similar kinds of experiences of, you know, they're writing stuff that's changing the world, but is the is the process of writing it changing them and affecting the way that they live in their communities? Yeah, absolutely. And see, this is the kind of way you ask, how do I find these? <laughs> how do we, I and my colleagues find these people? It's this kind of thing, right? It's like, you'll be like, oh, I know EHRP. Now this will be in your mind. You you might tell the people at Syracuse. There might be one student who is writing a memoir and has been in the MFA program who's a vet. And that would be the perfect person for us, right? So um, I feel like everybody I talk to, there's who's in the culture industry in some loose way, there's like one or two people they think of. And that's sort of, anyway, just, just to show you the nice felicity of this kind of work. But um, yeah, I, I have seen people really change. Um, people who experienced homelessness and now are having pieces in the New York Times and um, cover stories, you know, in magazines. And yeah, they get memoir deals. They they get uh, they're transformed by that. I think they're also transformed by yeah, positive attention to their experience mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, 
I mean, it's complex also working as a trying to work as a reporter when you're not from a con- traditional background for a reporter. There's a study that was done that 50% of the major, the few major national mag newspapers, the editors were went to Ivy and Ivy Plus universities. Mm. I think more than 50%. I think it's actually much more now I'm thinking about it. But so, but it it is they and including myself. <laughs> so I did probably YouTube Brett. So, but I think that um, that can make a huge disconnect for people and having a place like EHRP supporting you can really help because you're, no, you're not crazy for thinking this editor is being high-handed or maybe you are crazy for thinking that. (laughs) You know what I mean? This is just what they do. They don't, the editors don't respond, you know, like Mm -hmm. kind of teaching norms in some ways or like also supporting people. Uh, We have one writer, Bobby Dempsey, who moved 70 times in her childhood. Uh, mixture of poverty and domestic, you know, violence issues. And she, she told me about experiences with editors when, before she had a smartphone, which is like not, which is more recently than most of most people. Right. I think it was like 10 years ago, something like that. And the editors were like, Oh, just get your app. And she's like, uh, and there's just even that kind of stuff is very subtle, but having somebody say in our case, let's send you a, a, smartphone potentially, or trying to, you know, tell them, say, explain to your editor that you're from a different place, or you don't have strong Wi-Fi because you're in a rural community. Like, explain that. Like, these people who are editing now don't, they they don't have that life experience, and they may not have that uh, capacity to leave their own mental experience (laughs) enough to really imagine. Yeah, so that, that kind of stuff is. I feel like we can be transformative like that because we're backing people up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, backing them up with the editors, backing up their sense of reality, maybe sometimes countering their paranoia too. Mm-hmm. So it's not a one-way thing, right? Like, right. Um, no, it's fascinating. I mean, it, it's an aspect of what we were talking about earlier, which is that people do need certain social capacities in order to interact effectively in their work environments. Uh, and they also learn those things while they're in the working environment. So uh, that kind of work, it reminds me very much of like a sector-based training program where they, you know, they immerse you in the life of whatever the industry is that you're going to be working in as they're training you. And they apply all of the norms and standards um, uh, and then you're so you're getting a technical skill while you're there, but you're also getting that social packet, the package of social skills that you need in order to be successful. So then you walk in and you're if you're working in the IT sector and you've never been around a lot of other people who are working in the IT sector, you have some familiarity um, with uh, the norms of the profession, um, because otherwise you're just going to make a whole bunch of mistakes and feel like you're on the out um, outside looking in. So as I said at the beginning of the interview, you're a prolific writer. You've uh, amazing. Uh, I, I was thinking, does this person ever experience writer's block of any kind? Because I don't know how they get all of this out of themselves. Um, so, but but talk about your most recent book, Squeezed, uh, and then um, particular. I'm particularly interested in developing or having you explain this idea of the middle precariat. Yeah, sure. So Squeezed was a portrait of 
middle-class people in America or people who would have in the past been considered middle-class. Um, I followed many of them for off and on for like four years. So my part of my process has been, in, uh, with the exception of this book that is coming out because um, I did during the pandemic, but to kind of have a relationship with people over many years uh, where maybe it's not as immersive as a, uh, kind of some of the verite reporters, like invisible child type of thing, but it's like, I stop, I drop in with them over time and that's my process, right? So I get a sense. So that was what I did. And I followed people uh, kind of up and down the gradient. I followed a, a caregiver who wanted her son to be middle-class. So she, she kept him in uh, Paraguay and herself stayed in New York in this kind of what was a poverty, close to poverty level job as a nanny, but it made her son middle-class. And so it was like this sort of that preoccupation. And I actually, you know, followed them when they reunited after close to like, I think it was a decade of family separation. Um, you know, I talked to people who have their kids in 24 hour daycare because they were just trying to do uh, work in the post office or work at, you know, do night shift jobs. Uh, they drove trucks and things like that. And so I embedded myself in a 24 hour daycare. Um, I hung out with a adjunct professor who was on food stamps and we, you know, we went shopping for food and uh, hung out with her quite a bit. So, so that, that, this is the kind of stuff that I tried to cover in my last book. And I was trying to give a sense to the reader too, uh, that they weren't alone because I think a lot of the shame and blame that people feel for having not had the mobility they imagine is that they think that it's just them. And this is the part of what individualism can do, right? And I was hoping that the book would serve as kind of like a solve. And, you know, it started out of it, our, our experience. I had been a freelancer. My husband was a freelancer. We were buying health insurance. Um, we had savings, so that made it really different. But and we had a rent stabilized apartment. But um, we were had a newborn, and we were like, "Oh my God, this is a reckoning a lot of people have. This is going to be in New York. It's like thirty thousand dollars a year for a day. I mean, it was some it was some insane amount. And we're like, "How are we going to do this? Plus buying our insurance." Um, and we found ourselves, you know, go, just going through our savings at this rapid clip. So that was where my personal realization that then I kind of expanded into all these different characters' lives. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, and you talk about this. Uh, uh, well, first of all, uh, you t you, the middle precariat is what? Talk about that. The middle precariat is the middle class plus proletariat, plus precarious. So the term proletariat, right? That's like Marx <laughs> um, at, you know, the workers of the world will unite. Um, precariat is a term uh, that's used to describe the precarious working class. So, you know, everything from Amazon workers to adjunct professors to, um, you know, people at Starbucks, all these groups that are now unionizing, right? They're the the precariat. What I'm, I was seeing was the middle precariat, which is people who in the past, like journalists, might have been firmly middle-class, but now we're going from gig to gig. We're buying their insurance as we were. We're paying off their student debt 
for the masters that they needed to be middle class. Um, I mean, I talked to people who were uh, te tech workers, not you know Mark Zuckerberg, but like low level IT people who had spent fifty nine thousand dollars to get certified, you know, for what, and then it turned out as a for profit college. So there was a world of people who's um, for whom being doing everything so called right again didn't work, and that that they were the middle precariat. Yeah. Yeah. So um, these are people who are attempting, like you say, to do everything right. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're following the success sequence. They're, they're, you know, they're getting their education and training. They are trying their darndest to work the full time job that will support their families. They're, uh, they're, they're, they basically said, okay, we will follow these rules, um, and um, and this is an examination of just how precarious life can be even for people who are following all the rules. Yeah, exactly. Rough stuff. Um, and uh, you see this mainly as a function of the structural changes in the economy um, that um, the economy isn't delivering the kinds of opportunities that these people who are, you know, clinging to the edge of the middle class um, uh, need in order to advance for themselves and their families. Yeah. And also the same, the right, they're not, it's not giving the kind of safety net or like uh, care architecture, let's say like, I'm thinking that the 24 hour daycare, there'd be these night, nurse, night nurses, like maybe these hospitals should have daycares, you know, oh, maybe, right. I mean, this, there are actually not wildly complicated structural fixes that would have prevented mm. this. There were women who were running around trying to get their kids birthday cake between two different jobs, two different shifts, and they wouldn't see their kids till four in the morning. You know what I mean? And I felt like there's gotta be, um, kind of a more mechanistic solution in some ways. Part of what was going on with that, of course, was at that time there was, this was 2013 or 14 when I reported that, there was, um, what was it called? Just in time work, you know, where people were gets, would get these schedules and uh, from the companies, from the hospitals, from the, and they wouldn't have that, wouldn't be able to say, no, I, don't, I can't work at the 10 o'clock shift, I have a kid. I, I haven't been following it. I know that they, um, some states were like trying to put a kibosh on it and, you know, no, you have to give your workers um, ordinary hours or some level of choice because they'd have them coming back and forth, the workers that I was Oof. interviewing. Um, and that was a particularly awful modern development, which I don't know, is that is that an economic reality or is that a labor reality? Is that a problem of the way that work is being organized more than an economic reality. I mean, what it is, is a company pandering to the, um, you know, shareholders to make it yeah. the as possible and, you yeah. know, at the expense of human lives, right? That's, yeah. that's, so I don't, it's economic, but not, um, but uh, cruelly so, yes. Yeah, uh, it's really complicated, right? Uh, we have we we have a economy you know that demands 
uh, performance from not just from workers, but from companies um, to deliver dividends, to deliver, um, you know, uh, profit to the shareholders. And that's been an amazingly successful project over centuries in terms of building this middle class that is now uh, not thriving as it once did. Um, we basically we couldn't have gotten couldn't have gotten there without it, and now we're kind of um, we're in the situation where it it's kind of swinging back around on us uh, because, uh, like I said, companies are are performance based um, to their audiences as well. Um, so I don't know if you want to respond to any of that, but it it I uh, I feel like uh, there is a tendency to say, well, it's just it's just greed, um, but I think it's uh, it's a little more complicated than just greed. I think it is everybody trying to figure out how to uh, sustain themselves, whether they're multi-billion-dollar corporations or individuals. And families and um anyway i'll let you i'll let you come back at me on that um yeah so um again it's putting the care back into our economic reality a little more thinking about um mm. human lives is as part of what makes labor work and yeah. So I've been uh, excited lately about some of these unionization pushes and not just in Amazon and Starbucks, but in museums and in um, colleges, right? A lot of adjuncts. Um, I, be, I just covered that actually. So I could talk about that too. Um, uh, publisher. Let me, let, me, let me put a little bit of a point on this and just ask, do you think the labor shortage is a positive thing from your standpoint? In terms of the in terms of the kinds of problems that you're talking about, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't think the Great Resignation. I think it's a little overblown. The whole mm -hmm. the story of the Great Resignation. I, I agreed with Peter Coy had a piece on this. Yeah, um, that I had quit or whatever. Yeah, no, but, I don't think. I, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't tell me what you believe, think. What, what do you I think? don't believe any of that. I mean, I just think that uh, you know we've got a, a a population that can't keep. Uh, in terms of numbers that can't keep up with economic growth. Um, and the, you know, that's been a chronic problem that's become acute um, in the wake of the pandemic, where we had twice as many retirements as we normally would have. Uh, and all of a sudden, you've got a lot of gaps out there. Um, so I, I think this is, I don't think it's quite quitting. I don't think it's a great resignation. I think it's, it's the labor market responding to a shortage. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but I do think it's good in the sense that it did show their that they had potential power and um, workers could work speak with their feet and you know um, and I think that has led to some of the unionization pushes in the sense that it's like oh we could actually now fight for things that we've needed to fight for for many years so it's not like again like I'm just thinking I was covering the new school um, which is a college in. New York, New School, Parsons, a bunch of other schools where they're related. They've gone on strike. Um, some of the people were on the picket lines made $4,000 a class. And, you know, they had PhDs and they were in their 60s or whatever. And um, 
they'd been teaching for many years. So the this is something that needed to happen, right? This is not a livable wage anywhere, certainly not in New York City. Um, but yeah, the great resignation probably made people feel like hell, like, I can, but also just seeing people at REI forming a union, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. they're like, and they, they had the new school, they, they had a union. Um, but also this has happened in the University of California. There's like 48,000 workers uh, who've gone uh, strike there. There's strike actions at all these different museums. Again, these are not sectors that tend to be as politicized because again, they value individual effort, but from an, uh, it, I think from an artistic or intellectual perspective. So they're like, we're all doing our own project and they're not like necessarily communicating with each other. Um, so, but I think unionization can be catching, right? It can be a contagious idea. Um, yeah. To me that more than the great resignation has been a f- source of what what's going on with this, this new, these new uprisings. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and clearly, clearly raising wages alone is not enough. Um, I think, um, you know, that people work for more than one reason and they need more than one reason to stay in a job. They need, they need a job. They need to know that they're being cared about as individuals, um, in the workplace. And that, that's really, that really came out very clearly in our, in our recent survey, which showed, you know, if, if you felt like you were being invested in by your employer, that you were valued and trusted on the job that you, you know, had friends um, at work, the chances of you taking part in the great resignation or the churn um, in the labor market that's going on is much lower. Uh, And that wages were only one piece of that puzzle um, uh, that we need to give people more than one reason to stay. I think businesses need to give their workers more than one reason to stay at job. Yeah. I mean, also like the lack of regularity and security, like from the just in time work to having one class here, one class there to not, and to not know your fellow workers. I think there's a lot of cultural stuff that the, you know, work culture stuff that these companies could be doing better, like having totally disconnected and siloed and not knowing them, not having, you know, a coffee room or, I mean, I think there's sort of simpler fixes sometimes. Yeah. I mean, they're right. like it doesn't have to be super expensive. You know, it's like uh, I mean, I've adjunct I've adjuncted before a number of times, and I, I you know I had a probably more uh, prestige line than I was on than a lot of the folks I'm talking to interviewing. I'll be honest, but still, I was like I wasn't happy because of I didn't talk to anyone. I was like mm-hmm. alone going in to teach my class, and I was just thinking like if they just had like cookies and. <laughs> Like people gathered, you know, just like very low level stuff. Like this would have been a different experience. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, um, let's spin back a little bit to the journalism field in particular uh, to close out. Cause I, one of the areas that I'm really interested in is automation and particularly the sure. what's going on in terms of, um, you know, the introduction and expansion of artificial intelligence in the workplace. And one of the things I've noticed is that of late, within the last year, within the last nine months, an awful lot of chatter in the artificial intelligence world about the exposure of create the creative class 
to automation uh, that artificial intelligence can paint, artificial intelligence can write songs, <laughs> artificial intelligence can uh, can write news stories, um, right. and uh, and I know that you you said you've done some work in this area, so I really wanted to hear yeah. kind Not of on- what your what your thinking is. I mean, it's very dated, right? Because this is like it, it, it. The things I reported on were five years, four years, four, four or five years ago for my last book. But I was struck they they'd call um, the uh, you know uh, people replacing m- middle class professional workers. Sur- uh, they they would call the people that were being replaced surplus humans, and so I was sort of struck by that term and horrified by it. <laughs> Like surplus humans, um, and, and it was actually honestly, um, I I looked at some of the that the journalism, the so called journalism, and it was so terrible, it was unreadable, um, like the content that was being provided, and there there was a really funny name I forget what it was. It was like, um, you know, shoot, I forget what it was called, but it, it, there was a a robot uh, journalism for newsrooms. Um, that was one. Automated United Robots AI. Um, uh, and and it, you know they yes they could write something that was generic gobbledygook, but it had no flair and it didn't advance any discussion and it was not. Um, and so we're, I think whatever our insecure jobs are going to be insecure for longer, <laughs> you know, and I don't know, I haven't, and when there's a ra- AI radio host, I guess we're really in trouble, right? Um, but, <laughs> but I'm not sure that that person would, um, I, I, that robot, it, it, that AI host would be able to talk about a calling. Would they be able to organically summon that complex thought? They would just be like, or any of the pivots you've been making in this conversation, so I I have my doubts. I mean, I also, I, I do think that, um, I mean, sometimes it's complicated. Like, you know, like the, the nurses were, are great. Like the robot nurses were great for lifting people out of beds, but not for the social interaction that's really needed and part of healing. Uh, and also for, you know, anything diagnostic, right. They could like give, like, I think there are robot nurses. I had talked to somebody who was um, supervising the robot nurses in the hospital who were great at like giving the right amount of pills, mm-hmm. but that was about it. Like, it wasn't yeah. like they were ready to, um, you know, make the person who's terminally ill feel better or even be able to assess how they were feeling. Yeah. I think pretty, we're still far away from that. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think it boils down to um, it's very hard to give computers a theory of mind. Um, you know, it, you, the because my impression of who you are, which is not always accurate, uh, but it's built on much more than what you say. Um, it's built on your facial expressions and your body language and your lift of your eyebrows and, you know, all of, all of those things that um, go into communication that um, are heavily like biological, you know, they're, they're not 
they're not technical uh, in any way. So, all right, tell us what's next for you. You've mentioned you've got a new book uh, coming out, um, and then tell us. So, give me, give us a, a thumbnail of that, uh, and then uh, where can people follow you and the work that you're doing? Um, my new book is out in March. It's called um, Bootstrapped, and I think some of it will be excerpted and being published in that time. And then uh, you can follow me at Atlas Court, L-I-S-Q-U-A-R-T. Um, that's my nickname. And uh, also, please follow Economic Hardship Work. It's at Econ, Econ Hardship uh, on Twitter. And then, you know, we have Facebook and whatever. And you can just go to the site, economichardship.org, and read the work that we're publishing, see the films, um, listen to the radio show. Um, which is called Going for Broke. It's hosted by Ray Suarez, the legendary newsman. Um, yeah, so that's what that's what you can do. Terrific. Well, I want to thank you <clears throat> for your time um, and thank you even more for the work that you're doing and kind of keeping these stories in front of us uh, uh, because it's easy to get lost uh, in um, the 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 pressures, you know, we're just like everybody else. We've got to demonstrate value, prove that we are, you know, worthwhile human beings and not surplus. Yeah. I tell you, sir, that is, that is the worst. Yeah. Uh, you know, anyway, thank you so much for your time. Oh, uh, it's, it's really great talking to you, Brett. Yeah. Same thank here. You. And look forward to following your work. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working. <laughs>